you uh, grab your Bibles or your phones, technology, whatever you're going to be using for scripture reading, and stand with me this morning, as we will uh, read from a couple different passages today, as Pastor Chris continues in the series Hope Revealed, and today's message titled, The Night Before Christmas, the literal night before Christmas, as we are here on Christmas Eve. We're going to read the first passage from Psalm 40. We're going to read Psalm 40, verses 1 through 10, and our second passage will be Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18. So you have an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage today. Again, Psalm 40, verses 1 through 10, and then Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18. If you need a Bible, there are a few Bibles in front of you. You can find the first passage on page 321 and the second passage on page 696. So please join your hearts with me as I read Psalm 40, verses 1 through 10. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your laws within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. And then flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. As I read verses 1 through 18, Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 18. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God." Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will take with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in my minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Dear Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this season. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your your message of hope and that is revealed through the birth of your son Jesus that we remember this time of year. As we would have open hearts and minds to learn this morning and to have uh, the true meaning of Christmas in our hearts and in our families throughout this holiday. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, here we are on Christmas Eve. How exciting. That's just exciting. I want to thank you for being here. And I don't know what Christmas Eve means for you, what excitement, what anticipation, what family traditions you have. Christmas Eve is special. Uh, The evening in our family, we grew up always going 
to my parents' house, and then we would go to their candlelight service at their church, and they would always sing Silent Night at the end of that. And that became such a tradition for our family that even when my dad died, even though it was in the summer, we sang Silent Night at the end of his funeral because he was a man that enjoyed celebrating Christmas. Now that they're gone, I get with my brother and his wife, our families get together on Christmas Adam. That was last night, Christmas Adam before Christmas Eve. And we had a wonderful meal down on the plaza and enjoyed that together. So I don't know what you have for planned as a family or with friends as traditions, but it is the night before Christmas and all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a... Mouse, yes, we could probably go on and quote that entire poem. And thanks to Clement Moore's famous poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, which most of us know as "'Twas the Night Before Christmas," which is the first line, we know that and we know what I'm talking about when we say, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." This is easily one of the most famous poems in American history that did more to shape our traditions of Christmas than we can even imagine in American pop culture. And though there's some controversy over whether Moore actually wrote the poem or not, there's no doubt that many of our traditions for Christmas, celebrating that, come from that poem. The idea of gift-giving, flying reindeer, and the arrival of Santa on Christmas Eve was all things that Moore introduced into our culture. In fact, it was Christmas Eve instead of Christmas Day because there was religious controversy on whether uh, we should celebrate Christmas on Christmas Day, and so he specifically did that. Well, my desire this morning is certainly not to crush anyone's Christmas dreams on this Christmas Eve, but I do want to make clear one thing right up front, and it's this. There really was a historical night before Christmas over 2,000 years ago when a real individual was born into time and space as fully God and fully man and was sent to earth by God the Father to give humanity the greatest gift in all the world, the gift of salvation, which we just sang about. And it's a gift of being forgiven of our sins, declared right in the sight of God, and the ability to enter into the presence of a holy God, even though we are sinners, and not to be destroyed by His holiness, but instead to enjoy a personal relationship with Him. And though we don't know the exact date of His birth, we do know that it was sometime in the winter over 2,000 years ago. And we do know this, his birth was as miraculous as it was historical. His birth, his life, his death on a cross, and his resurrection from the dead are all as verifiable as any other historical event. In fact, maybe more so, because every time we date our calendars, we are attributing to the fact that historically there was a man, Jesus of Nazareth, that made such a difference that at least in Western culture, we have realigned our calendars. Furthermore, and this is what I want us to focus on this Christmas Eve, is that we know exactly what Jesus said the night before Christmas. Now, how do we know this? It's because King David predicted it in Psalm 40 that Zach just read for us. Psalm 40, especially verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. But then here in Hebrews 10, that which David predicted and probably didn't even know for sure what he was saying, though he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it, we see on the very lips of Jesus. Verse 5, Therefore, when he comes into the world, the night before Christmas, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will. So here's what we know. We know that according to the Bible, on the night before Christmas, God the Son said to God the Father, I know what you don't desire and what you don't require, and I know what you do desire and do require. Behold, I delight to do your will. Here I have come, the body that you have prepared for me. And what we're reading there in your Bibles is no mere poem written by a human being, but inspired scripture written by God himself through human authors. And it tells us what was on the mind, what was in the heart, what was spoken by the Son of God on the night before Christmas. And keep in mind, this was not the night before he was born in Bethlehem. This is the night before he was conceived in the womb of a virgin who was a sinner just like us. And yet God, by the Holy Spirit, it was able, God the Father, provided a body, which at that time was a single cell, the egg found in the womb of a virgin, and yet by the Holy Spirit, the Son of God indwelt human flesh and gained human nature. I mean, you know, sometimes we think all this started with the birth of the baby, that somehow Jesus just went zoop and descended into the baby the moment Jesus was born, but in reality, it started with a single cell, a human being beginning at the point of conception. And so on that night, before his conception, hope was revealed in the body. There is so much hope revealed in the body that the Son of God was about to receive in the miracle of the Incarnation. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to unpack for you the significance of what the Son of God said on the night before He was conceived, or the day before He was conceived. There He was in heaven. He didn't begin to exist the moment He was conceived. He was alive for all eternity. And yet, on that time, right before His conception, here's what He said. I want you to see this morning three reasons the Son of God needed a body. Three reasons why the incarnation needed to happen and why it reveals great hope to us this morning. So let me give you the first reason, and it's simply this. To resolve a problem we all face as sinners separated from a holy God. Jesus needed a body to solve a problem that all of us face here this morning. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter if I'm up here preaching, you're there listening. We're all the same. We're sinners and we have a problem because we're separated from a God who is holy and we are sinful. And here's the bad news. You said, I came for bad news. Yes, you got to hear the bad news to appreciate the good news. And here's the bad news of Christmas Eve. What God desires and requires of us, we cannot do. We cannot be it, we cannot do it. What God desires and requires of us as His creatures, whom He created for His purpose and for His pleasure, we cannot be or do. Notice, again, in Hebrews 10, look in your Bibles, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says... Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. In fact, in Psalm 40, David says, You have not only not desired these things, you have not required them. Now, when you look at the words used for sacrifices in these verses, there's four distinct offerings, four distinct sacrifices. And I think the reason that is, is David and the author of Hebrews is summarizing the entire Old Testament law, the entire sacrificial system, by which men and women would try to appease God's wrath and ease their conscience by bringing these external sacrifices. And basically what these passages are telling us is God was not pleased, He did not desire these things, and He did not 
require them. You say, well, wait, I thought God required, I thought this was part of God's law. It was, but we're going to see the purpose of these animal sacrifices. Here's the point. What God requires and desires from people who are separated from him due to their sin is something that we cannot do by offering certainly animal sacrifices. But what I want you to see this morning is there's nothing we can offer. There's nothing. Because you might be here going, well, there's no way I'm going to offer an animal sacrifice. I'm not even tempted to do that. But there's other sacrifices. There's other works by which we try to do external things to appease God and to ease the burden of our sin and separation from Him. So here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about what a holy God doesn't want and what He does want from us as sinners. And here's what He doesn't want. And here's what these passages are trying to tell us. God doesn't want external religion that can never cleanse our sinful hearts. God is not looking for religiosity. God is not looking for rule-keeping. God is not look, looking for those external things to try to deal with a problem that is deep-rooted in our hearts. Now, why is this? Because no matter how many, it says in the passage, no matter how many animal sacrifices you offer, and no matter how many times you do it, it never can cleanse your conscience. And if you have tried to build a relationship or to ease your guilt by doing external works, you know that, in fact, the more you do them, what happens to your guilt? It increases. The burden increases. And if you start trying to, uh, to obey a set of rules to measure up to what you think God expects, the more you try, the harder it becomes. Have you ever tried? You know, I mean, it's kind of like the idea of don't think of a pink elephant right now. Now, don't think of a pink elephant. Now, stop that. What happens? What are you thinking of? A pink elephant, right? And that's exactly, I'm going to please God and I'm not going to do this. And then you start out and, and you, you do that. You do it more than you even realize. And you realize your desire to sin is deeper as you do these external things. Now, why can't external religion or good works ever cleanse our hearts or appease God's wrath against sin? It's because they're never sufficient to atone. They never get to the heart of the problem. And more than that, God not only wants to forgive our sin, but He wants to perfect us to the point to where we are as holy as He is so that we can enter His presence. God wants to have fellowship with us, but He's holy and we're not. His holiness cannot tolerate our sinfulness. And so when we try to work our way to Him, the problem is everything we're doing in the process is sinful and He cannot accept. It will not make us perfect in His sight and it will not cleanse our conscience. So God doesn't want external religion because it's not sufficient to atone for our sins, but also it's never capable of being a worthy substitute of heart obedience. See, what God wants from you and I is He wants your heart, a willing desire to love Him, obey Him, and enjoy His presence. And the reality is, God does not desire token obedience. There, I did that. Now get off my back. He doesn't desire empty rituals. He doesn't desire... Once a year, religiosity, or once a month. Guess what? He doesn't even desire once a week religiosity if our heart is not in it. Are you following me? You see, showing up every once in a while, or every week for that matter, with no heart for God to honor Him, with our complete obedience every day of the week during those Sundays or during that worship, is missing the point. Besides, when they were presenting animal sacrifices, animals are animals and they're not human, duh, right? 
Also, animals are not a willing sacrifice. You know, no animal jumps up on the altar and say, slip my throat and bleed me out and burn me as a burnt offering. They weren't voluntary. They weren't human. And that's the same way with external and religious acts. When we try to appease God and ease our conscience by doing that which our heart is not really in, well, God doesn't desire that, and that's not what He requires. You see, God's not looking for a handout this morning. Now, we're going to take an offering. If you want to give to it, please do, okay? We're not gonna, but you know what? God's not looking for a handout this morning. You know why? He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, He owns it all. God is not looking for a casual or an occasional religious nod in his direction. You know why? Because he's in heaven and thousands upon ten thousands of angels glorify him every day. He's not in need of greater attention. And God's not looking this morning for worker bees to do his grunt work. He's already able to do anything he desires by his all-powerful omnipotence and thousands of angels again to do his bidding. So what does God desire this morning? What is God looking for this morning? He wants you. He wants you. He wants all of you. He wants your heart this morning. Not just a part, but the whole. This is what God desires. And this is what he requires from us as sinners and what external religion can never satisfy and can never do because everything we do and everything we are is stained by our sin and unworthy to enter into his presence. So what does God want this morning? God wants internal righteousness. He's not looking for an external religiosity and rule keeping. He's looking for internal righteousness that results in an obedient life. He wants an internal change that will result in an outward life that follows hard to obey him. And you know, this passage of these sacrifices, there's a great Old Testament illustration of this. The first king of Israel was a man by the name of Saul. He was the people's choice. Okay, he was the king that Israel wanted. Not necessarily the one God wanted, the one they wanted. And so Saul was Israel's king, and God gave him the command to fully conquer a, a, a people, uh, enemies of God, and he was to lead the people of Israel to conquer this nation, and he was to destroy everything, every person, every animal, everything, because of their offense against God's holiness. And Saul, instead of being completely obedient, kept back some of the people and the best of the animals to really give glory to himself. And so here's what God's prophet Samuel said to Saul. Or actually, this is what the Lord said to Samuel, his prophet, about Saul. Listen, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not carried out my commands." And so God sent Samuel to say this to Saul. And when Saul sees him, the disobedient king, here's the first words out of Saul's mouth. Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. You see, that's religiosity. That's verbiage. But the reality was he hadn't fully obeyed. He hadn't blessed and honored the Lord more than himself. And so here's what Samuel said. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear because they were supposed to be totally destroyed? And Saul said this in his piety. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. In other words, he said, we did partial obedience because we wanted to honor the Lord. No, that wasn't it. You had a partially obedient heart. And so here's what the prophet said. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination or, or, or uh, uh, demonic worship, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. He's saying, look, a disobedient heart is the greater offense in God's eyes. For, re, for Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Here's the thing. Saul tried to substitute wholehearted surrender and obedience with some religious external acts, and God said, I don't desire that, and I don't require that. So Saul no longer was king, and God chose David, the king of his choosing, and the man after his own heart. And David learned a lesson from Saul. And so Psalm 40, David sings this song and says, Look, I get it. I know what you don't want. External religiosity. I get what you want. Internal righteousness. Behold, here I am. Ready to do your will. I delight in it. This is my heart's desire. And yet, if you know the story of David, what did David end up doing? David ended up committing adultery. And then he did murder to cover up his adultery. And then he hid his sin from God and refused to repent and confess, of it, confess it until the prophet Nathan stuck his bony finger in his hand and said, You are the man. So what you have is Saul, who outright rebelled, but you have David who desires it but can't fulfill it. So I don't know who you relate to this morning. Maybe you're the bad guy, Saul, that's the outright rebel and you can't believe you're in church on Christmas Eve this morning. Or maybe you're the good guy, David, with all the right intentions and the deep desire to fully obey God, but you have failed. You see, it doesn't matter because we're all in the same boat. We cannot do, we cannot be what God desires and requires of us. You see, what God desires and requires is a surrendered heart that delights in obeying His will according to His word. You see, David wanted to do it. He wanted to do it voluntarily. He said, behold, I come. No one's forcing me. I am here, surrendered to you. He wanted to do it with joy. I delight in doing your will. I'm not grudging on this. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing this out of duty and going through the motions. And he says, I want to do it from your heart because in Psalm 40 he says, your law is written or is, is within my heart. It's within my heart. I've meditated on it. And he says uh, he wants to do God's will according to God's word. Because he says, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. And he's right, because what he's referring to there in Psalm 40 is Deuteronomy 17, where God outlines the duties and the obedience expected of a king of Israel. In fact, God so much desired the kings of Israel to obey him, and obey and do His will according to His commands, that if you became a king of Israel, you would be required to take the five book of Moses and copy them for yourself. I'm not talking about a computer digital readout. I'm talking about scroll and pen. Now, I don't know about you, something we've lost in our technological age is the benefit of writing things out. Because when you write things out, it's been proven, you remember them better. And so the point was, you as a king were to write out all five books, Genesis, Exodus, all the way to Deuteronomy, so that you would have your personal copy of the Word of God and meditate on it and do it. And, and, and David saying, look, I want to do this. I want to do it down to the letter of the law. I want to do it according to the spirit of the law because I know what's written about me. But the reality is this. What David desired to do, he couldn't do. What Saul should have done, he refused to do. And like us, no matter who we are, we too have failed to do what God desires and requires. 
And so to resolve this problem that we all face, God provided the bad news that, hey, you cannot be or do what God requires. But I told you that there was good news as well. Here's the second reason God provided a body. The second reason God provided a body for the Son of God was to obey God's will to save a people for himself from among sinners. To obey God's will to save a people for himself from among sinners. So here's the good news this Christmas Eve. I hope you got the bad news, but now the good news is even gooder. Now, I know that's bad grammar. It's good theology, okay? It's gooder. Okay, now here it is. The good news of Christmas Eve. What God desires and requires, Jesus has done. Jesus has done for us in the body that God prepared for him. Is that exciting? That's what the angels were saying. Glory to God in the highest. Because God the Father has provided God the Son a body so that he can do for us what we could never do for ourselves, so that he could be for us what we could never be. And yet it's what God desires and requires. Look at Hebrews 10 again, verse 5. Remember, this is Jesus speaking when he came into the world the night before his conception in the womb of a virgin. He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Verse 6 in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And look at verse 8, 9, and 10. After saying the above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, the whole external religion, the whole rule-keeping of the law, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which was offered according to the law. Then he said, once he said, I know what you don't want, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, external religion, in order to establish the second, and here's what he says, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. So here's the good news. Jesus has done in his body what God desires and requires. A surrendered heart that delights in obeying his will according to his word. That's what God's done for us. What Saul refused to do, what David desired to do but failed to do, what none of us have ever done, Jesus has done this morning in the body God provided for him. And you know what's exciting about this? God the Father is so passionate about having a relationship with us and having a people that will live in obedience to him that he is the one that provided the body. In other words, he, sometimes we view God the Father as the angry, mean one and Jesus as the loving, nice one. The reality is God the Father loves and wants to redeem you and save you as much as God the Son. God the Father provided the body, and God the Son willingly took on the body. And in Philippians 2, great passage where it says, the reason Jesus so willingly took on this body that was destined to bleed and to die and bear the sins of the world was because he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about us. He was thinking about us. And so he became obedient to the point of death. It was voluntary. He did it with joy. Hebrews 12.2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He did it from the heart. The night before he went to the cross, Jesus sweated blood drops and said, man, if I can avoid this, I'd like to. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That was his heart's desire. It was from the heart, and it was according to God's word. Because here in Hebrews 10, in verse 7, where it says in the scroll of the book, it was written of me. Remember, David was referring to one little chapter in the law, and perhaps all five books 
of Moses, the first five books. But when Jesus says this, he's saying this. The entire Bible, every command, every promise, every command I will obey, and every promise I will fulfill. Wow. In the scroll of the book. You see, if you found this book difficult to understand, it's to be expected. It's God's word. If you found this book difficult to obey, it's to be expected. We're sinners with a heart problem. But the reality is Jesus is the fulfillment of this entire book. In fact, he's the living word who fulfilled the written word. And so here's what he did for us. What a holy God wants from us, Jesus has already done. And he did two basic things according to this passage. Number one, he lived obediently as our sinless substitute. He lived the life that God requires that none of us have ever done. Jesus, in every attitude, and this blows my mind, in every attitude, at every moment, Jesus had the right attitude. Anybody want to say, that's me this morning? I mean, I'm doing good. Well, I'm just, no, I'm just not doing good at that at all. You ever try to have a good attitude all day long? How's that working? Right? I mean, no, you can't. Have you ever tried to not sin for a full day? I mean, I wake up and I'm sinning, right? In my attitude, in my heart. And then Jesus not only never sinned, but he completely obeyed all that God required. See, we can get pretty good at not doing the big bad things, right? You know, the things where, you know... Man, if the congregation saw me doing that, I'd be in trouble. I better not doing that. But you know, the place you can't see is my heart. And you know what? If you looked at Jesus' heart at any moment of any day in the 33 and a half years he lived, you would see pure motives and you would see pure obedience and righteousness. Because you see, he lived obediently. Listen to Hebrews 4.15. 4, 4, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. This is the beauty of it. We've got a God that's so righteous. We have a Savior who is a fully God, fully man, who is so righteous he's never sinned, and yet he's so human he can relate to every one of us in this room and every temptation that we've ever faced. Because he's resisted to the uttermost. See, we face temptation this far, and then we sin, right? Jesus has faced it to the uttermost, and he never gave him. Believe me, he can relate to what you're struggling with today. So the first thing he did was live obediently. The second thing he did was die sacrificially as a sufficient sacrifice for our sins before God. You see, what repeated animal sacrifices could never do, what religiosity will never do for you, we're just going to church and going through the motions, what will never do, what will never ease your conscience, Jesus did on the cross. Jesus did. Look at Hebrews 9.12. Just turn back one chapter. Hebrews 9.12. Listen to Hebrews 9.12. It's not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Everything this world's looking for, Jesus has accomplished. Look again at Hebrews 10, verse 10. Hebrews 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified. By this will, the will of doing God's will to save sinners, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Folks, that is good, good news. So now what's Jesus doing? He didn't just die, he rose. And when he rose, Jesus is now sitting as the sovereign Savior at the right hand of God. Listen, look at Hebrews again. It says He is sitting. He is sitting 
in verse 12. It says, He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Why is Jesus sitting? Let me just quickly give you three reasons. First of all, his work is done. You, as a priest, the priest stood to offer sacrifices to God. They didn't sit. And Jesus has already offered himself as that perfect sacrifice. And because his work is done, he's seated. Listen, the payment for your sin has been paid. The work that God desires, it is finished. Secondly, God's wrath is satisfied. Jesus is sitting there and God says, look, I accept you as that sacrifice for sinners. So Jesus' work is done, God's wrath has been satisfied, and he's sitting there waiting. Now, have you ever waited for, if you wait for something, what, what do you do? You go to the doctors, and what do they tell you? Oh, glad you're here, come right on in. No, what do they say to you? Please take a seat. Why? Because you're waiting. Jesus is sitting because he's waiting, and what he's waiting is not for his first coming. That already happened. That's Christmas. He's waiting for the second coming where he's going to come back and conquer his enemies, and the time of salvation will be over, and it will be a time of judgment. And so he waits for that day. Listen, look, look back in Hebrews 10 again. In verse, um, in verse 7, It says, then I said, behold, I have come. And here's what I want you to see. There's certain times and verses of the Bible where the tense of verbs are important. And this is one of them where he says, behold, I have come. And literally, that's in a present tense. He says, I am coming. He came once, but he is coming again. And he's waiting for that moment. So I ask you this morning, are you ready? Are you ready for His coming? He's coming. He came once, and He's coming again. He came first time for salvation. The second time, it's going to be for judgment. Are you ready? So that's the good news. And so what we need to do is ask, how should we respond? And that's the third reason why God provided Jesus a body. Let me give you the third reason. To make a holy people who do His will as they wait for His second coming to make a holy people who do His will as they wait. Now, this is interesting. Christmas, we think of Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. But the reason God is with us was to do a work for us. And when He does that work for us, He wants to do a work in us. He wants to transform our hearts. He wants to cleanse us of sin. He wants to give us a new heart of obedience. Look at Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified in the New American Standard. The tenses of these verbs, and I'm not trying to give you a grammar lesson, I'm trying to give you a theology lesson, and here it is. It says this, By one offering, he has perfected. That is something that was done, and it continues on. If you've accepted Jesus and what he did in his body, when the moment you accepted him, you were perfect in the sight of God. But you're still being sanctified, present tense. Here's the reality. It's the tension of the Christian life. We are perfect enough to enter God's presence because of what Jesus has done, yet we still have a sin nature that needs to be made holy and more set apart from sin. And that's not discouraging because God sees us as perfected. Now, how did He do that? Look at verse 15. Verses 15 through 18 tells us how God has perfected His people and how He's making them holy. It says, and the Holy Spirit testifies. The first thing He does when you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes to perfect and set you apart and begin the process of making you holy. And then He says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart and on their mind. I will write them. God gives you an internal 
heart transplant where you now have a heart for God and His laws and His expectations and His desires are given to you from the inside so that you can begin the process of working them out in obedience. So what does a holy God want His perfected people to do with their bodies? Now, if I was preaching next week, which I'm not, but if I was, we'd be going through these five things. Because in the rest of chapter 10, in the rest of chapter 10, God gives what He desires, His perfected people, how you can become more holy as His forgiven people. And I just wanted to give you these five things. They're written there, and I just you can read the passages. The first is, God wants you to draw near to Him with a sincere heart and full assurance. You see, He's cleansed our conscience. We can enter God's presence. You say, but I sin. That's all right. You're perfected. You're forgiven. You can enter His presence and say, God, I messed up again. I know. I, I saw that. I've already paid for that. Okay, forgive me. You're forgiven. You're always forgiven in Christ. Draw near to God with full assurance. Not guilt-ridden. Intimate worship. A life of intimate worship. Number two, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Listen, hold fast to the truth of the gospel. This message that God is preaching to us this morning is precious. And we need to hold fast to it. We can't deviate from it. We can't tolerate people distorting it. We need to hold fast to the good news that Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Number three, in verses 24 and 25, don't forsake gathering together to encourage one another. Hey, God has made a people, not a person. He's made a people. And so, in this new year, don't forsake gathering with God's people to enter into God's presence. So I commend you over and over for being here on Christmas Eve morning. Be here for New Year's Eve morning. Why? Because that's the process by which God makes us more holy, and it's the reason He saved us, so that we could worship together. Number five, don't disrespect Jesus' sacrifice by continuing in willful sin. Boy, that's a powerful passage. I wish I could read it to you. I'd encourage you to read it. Read it this week. Because it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God when you've embraced the Savior as your Lord, and yet you willfully sin and keep on sinning. And basically what the author of Hebrews tells us in this passage is this. If you've accepted Jesus, and you profess to accept Him, and yet you willfully keep sinning against His sacrifice for your sins, then the indication is, you haven't really been forgiven. You don't lose your salvation. The fact is you never had it because you continue in willful sin. And then finally, persevere in doing God's will in, in, in spite of setbacks and pushbacks. It's never, got, it's never been more difficult and it will only get more difficult in living a holy life as God's people. And he's saying, hey, don't stop. Don't stop. So here's what I want to say this Christmas Eve. We've got a lot of reason to celebrate. Amen? And here is what Jesus is saying. God prepared a body for Jesus so that Jesus could live a surrendered heart, live with a surrendered heart that delights in obeying God's will in all things. And what Jesus did in His body, you can do in your body. You can live with a surrendered heart that delights in obeying God. But for that to happen, we've got to respond. And here's what Jesus is saying on this Christmas Eve. Look, I've come, and I'm coming again in the body that God prepared. You realize the same body that was born in Bethlehem, the same body that was crucified on the cross, the same body that ascended into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, that same body with its nail-scarred hands, wounded side, and scarred feet is coming back and will set foot on this planet. Are you ready? Two things you need to do. First of all, 
receive him. Jesus is saying to you this morning, receive me in all that I've done. You say, well, how do I do that? You do it just like you're going to receive a gift tonight, tomorrow morning. Someone presents you a gift, what do you do? You don't work for it. You don't pay for it. You don't pay him back for it. What do you do with a gift? Tell me. You just take it. You just take it. Listen, this morning, give to Jesus all your sin, all your failure, all your, all your gift, and drop them out of your hands and just receive him and all that he's done for you. And you cross from unbelief to belief, from doing your own thing to doing God's thing, from trusting in all this external religiosity and rule keeping, and enter into trusting Jesus and what he's done, and you will be set free this morning. But if that's already you, then I would say this, or rather Jesus would, give me all that I'm due. Give me all that I'm due in light of all that I've done for you. It's really interesting. In Hebrews 13, 15, the animal sacrifices are replaced with the sacrifice of the lips. Because you know what? We don't have to do anything anymore. We just sacrifice of praise. And then you go to Romans 12, and Romans 12 says, By the mercies of God, all that God has done for you in Christ, present your bodies a living sacrifice. So, if you've received that forgiveness, if you've been cleansed and that new heart is in you, take those five commitments of God's holy people, present your body this morning and say, Lord, in the new year, these are my five commitments. These are my five commitments. Amen? All right, with your heads bowed, let's respond to this good news this morning. So with your heads bowed, I want you to look within and see, has your heart been cleansed? Has your guilt been lifted? Has your sins been forgiven? Has your heart been transformed? If not, receive Jesus this morning by faith alone in what he's done. And if that is you this morning, you have received that gift, then give him back all that he desires. Father, I pray that as we have this response time, a moment of reflection, that we'll do business with you. Those who need to receive the gift will. Those who need to give to you all the glory, all the honor, will commit to doing so by faith in you, our Savior. Let's do business with God as they play.